Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Af Malhotra, once again on Straight Talk, your host. And of course, I cannot disappoint you because every single time um, I do this, you are, you know, bewildered as to how I end up getting these incredible guests on the show. And I, I have um, uh, done you proud again, because today I have a wonderful guest, an author, of course, and someone who has, of course, you know, discovered that there is much more to, to the human self uh, than the busyness of life and everything we know we get caught up in sometimes. And that causes unnecessary anxiety, stress, conditions that we all now are very familiar with and want to remove from our lives. And uh, by doing so, we end up in the world of, you know, spirituality eventually, if we can get there through meditation, through yoga, and all of these incredible practices that we know are very, very, very powerful. And um, today I have the author of Wild Yoga, um, Rebecca Wildbear on the show. Rebecca, welcome to Straight Talk. What a pleasure and honor to have you uh, on our show today. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be here. I'm excited to talk about my book. Are we excited to hear about your book? Now, tell us about the subtitle. I'm actually not going to ruin it for you, but it's a profound subtitle. So the book is Wild Yoga. What is the subtitle? Because I want to dig into that a little bit more. It's uh, called A Practice of Initiation, a Veneration, and Advocacy for the Earth. So okay. um, I guess by that title, you can tell we cover a lot in the book. It goes it goes a, a really great broad distance and also it has a lot of depth at the same time. So we travel a lot of places. Yeah. So they're almost, um, they're almost dimensions to some extent you're traveling through the, yeah, the few words that stand up practice. Um, I can totally relate to that because without, without practice and repeatability, you just cannot get to the point at which you feel that you have achieved or progressed mm -hmm. initiation for many, it is an initiation, especially with what you're going to talk about, veneration and advocacy um, and of the earth. So these are, these, are, these are such important aspects of human development that uh, we've been talking about for about three years now on the show uh, with different perspectives, different authors bringing and shedding light in different ways. Uh, your book is clear, wild, wild yoga. So first tell us, about, um, I'd love to know about who you are because the personal story is very important before we start to understand why you wrote the book. So, so who is Rebecca? How did you get to this point? What's been the journey of your life? Um, a whistle-stop tour would be amazing so our guests understand who we're, who we're talking to today. Well, I would say um, I've been a lifelong lover of the earth. And uh, even though I grew up in a, you know, pretty regular suburban kind of neighborhood without a lot of wilderness, there were trees in my yard and I spent a lot of time in them. And right. I, I flocked to whatever open space, you know, that there was. And uh, when I was able to go to wilder places, uh, yeah. sometimes I was just in love with them, whether it was swimming in the ocean, walking through a forest when I was visiting my grandparents, or in later life, you know, getting to go at work at summer camp, which was the wildest place I'd ever known in, in the Catoctin Mountains in Maryland and Camp David. I grew up in Maryland mm. and uh, ultimately moving out west to more wild spaces and have mostly spent my life as a wilderness guide um, so that I would be outside all the time. And so a lot of my work is about deepening connections with nature. And I was kind of struck when you began the conversation about talking how people get caught up in things. and yeah. 
And I was just starting in that moment as I was hearing you just feeling into how different, I mean, you may have noticed this, how different we feel when we're in nature. If anybody's listening, they might know. Like even if you go camping or backpacking for a weekend, when you're in your office on the computer and on your phone and driving the car, you you, you feel very different. Your state, your attention is very different. And then when you go out in the forest for a while, um, you know, even 24 hours, you're out there and you're off like cell phone and you're mm. off everything you're just in nature, um, your, your focus and your consciousness starts to change. Like I start to, Mm. I love when it happens because I start to notice things that I didn't notice before. Mm. And just, I I feel like a different person when I'm there. And so it just, it kind of, you know, we are, we are who our environment is. And so it felt like the best teachers and guides I could ever have were the wild world. And so being out there listening to them and now guiding other people to listen to them over these last couple of decades has been the best way I could also grow into, you know, who I am called to be and certainly be able to write this book. Mm. And it's not not only the wilderness, but it's also the wildness of our dream life, you know, mm. and our wild imagination, the images that come up unbidden that seem related to also the physical wild world. Um, and also related to our soul or the vision of who we're supposed to be. Um, and so it's like all those things can initiate us, the wild world, the dream world, our souls, to give us a vision of what is worth doing and, and who we're to live, as well as call us into a deeper relationship with um, with each other. Mm. And that's kind of, I'll just say one more thing. I know I'm going on, but uh, that's kind of like wild yoga is kind of getting back to the roots of yoga because people Mm. get confused with the word yoga because it's so misunderstood in our culture. People think yoga just means yoga asana or the poses of yoga and that's it. And I do think the poses of yoga are very important branch in the tree of yoga. And so I include an asana pose in every chapter of my book related to the theme but the, the physical postures of yoga are only one branch in the tree. The larger purpose has always been to discover who we are at the core and what is our purpose and how to be in relationship with everything while we're here in the, in the world and who is the world mm-hmm. and to be on a deeper journey like that. Um, I think like the journey of like the, the material or physical realm and being able to relate with that, with the, the mm-hmm. integrity of who we are, but also, also connecting to the spiritual realm too. So, and, you know, kind of taking our advice from the spiritual, or in my case, um, all these other intelligences that are greater than us, the natural world, the spiritual world, the soul, Mm. our dreams, and to help have those things guide our actions and who we are in the world. Mm. So that's in large part what has called me in my life. Um, That, and I would say my love of the wild world has also called me to care about uh, ecocide and ecological devastation and um, trying to bring together these these personal growth practices that stretch us to also relate uh, for how we can take actions on behalf of the planet in in a true kind of way of advocating for the earth meaning not it's not about you know buying sustainable stuff it's about actually protecting land and species and mm. imagining mm. how we can live in a way that allows them to live and thrive mm. Mm. Beautiful. I have, I have so much to say to you. So thank you for sharing that. And um, so a couple of examples, just to reinforce your statement around connecting with nature. 
Uh, and it's very, very important. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot myself because, you know, we're buried in, you know, in, okay, I guess in an office like this and you've got these, these screens, right? And it's great because I'm able to connect with you now. Let's be honest, it's got some upside. There is a danger, however, that you tend to get addicted to and consumed by and very comfortable with, of course, not even leaving your front door uh, because everything is now in one place and you become more intertwined with and connected to the frequencies of these devices around you. And I, I'm starting to see that now because I do this a lot personally, but I need to get out of this because I feel like the energy fields around me uh, as much as I'm learning from you now and I'm, I'm, vibra I'm vibing with you, they're so powerful. And I have things around me and I have certain rocks around me to just ground me and so on and so forth. I'm standing on a mat that grounds me. I always stand up now as opposed to sitting down. I feel sitting down really weakens me. Bizarre. Because most of my life I've been sitting down and working on a desk. So now standing up as I, I can use my hands and so on and so forth make, liberates me. And those are just small examples of what the nature does when you're in nature, with nature, where you're free, you're actually free, you're liberated. Um, we had a guest on our show, Grandma Lene, she's a native elder, m many, uh, maybe a year ago, it was phenomenal. It's the first time she went on a podcast ever. And the reason she wasn't good with technology is because she continued to, devices continued to stop working or blow up around her, mobile phones and so on and so forth because it's her frequency was just so uh, at opposing ends of what that device was creating. And she, she had to quickly adjust and she, did, she never, never really wanted to stay on a, on a call for more than 20 or 30 minutes. It was phenomenal. And she talked a lot about how her powers and her ability to be who she is, is grounded literally, you know, and from the nature. And she, it's almost like she feels more comfortable being with nature than being confined to the four walls, you know? Mm. Um, we, so th that was an amazing experience for us. We, Sadhguru, who is a very well-known um, spiritualist out of India right now, who I'm hoping to have on my show in summer, you know, talked about his awakening and many other stories of, of you know, sadhus or spiritual leaders or folks like yourself who've had some form of an awakening or have figured out what's important to them when, when it comes to nature. His awakening was in nature. So it's not, you know, it wasn't confined to a building where he was sitting and, and meditating. Uh, years and years of just hanging around on a tree when he was young. And one fine day, he, you know, his story is he had some sort of an awakening. And of course, he sees things differently now. But this, this, this concept of nature and how we're getting more and more detached from it, I feel because of technology. And this is the downside of technology. I mean, it's bad enough to have a mobile phone, but now we're talking about the metaverse. I'm sure you've heard about the metaverse. Where we, are, we are saying this is not enough. You need to go to another microcosm, which is even more locked up. Uh, like it's, it's, like it's almost a wormhole, right, uh, for us. Tell, tell me how, um, firstly, why did you write this book now? Um, what was compelling you to write this book right now? And what, what are you expecting to do with this book? What's the, the impact you'd like to make? And then we'll go into the book, of course, in more detail. Uh, I would say, you know, I've been, you know, trying to write the book for a long time, like a decade. I started writing a book right. called Wild Yoga. I wrote a 70,000 word <laughs> manuscript. Um, turned it into a coach, writing coach. And she was like, oh, well, you know, she gave me some feedback, <laughs> you know, like you're trying to cover a lot here. And, um, and then I wrote a smaller book out of that conversation, which um, I still isn't published. 
And then that turned into, well, why don't you go back to writing the first book you were trying to write, Wild Yoga? And mm. somehow um, it just happened that I could really, uh, what I really wanted to do was include a lot. I just wasn't mm. able to do it when I first tried. Mm. And then suddenly, like, I was able to mm. do it. And I think part of what spurred me on is my tremendous love for the earth and my grief about, you know, what's going on. And also my like feeling that I have something to contribute mm -hmm. and it can't wait. You know, it's like, it's now uh, mm -hmm. is the moment. And so it just, it just kind of happened. And then things fell into alignment. You know, um, I'm a guide, but because of COVID, I was guiding less uh, and I was caretaking a place. So the physical kind of standards lined up to just allow me right. to have the space to just do it. And then I also just started saying no to everything else because it was like my muse was just like, no, this has to happen. And the only way this has to happen is if you just say no to these other things you were saying yes to. And it was pretty wild, but it was like, I was compelled. Like my muse was just, it was, it suddenly became urgent. And plus the words that I had wanted all these years that couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get just like, they just came. Wow. Mm. Very, very interesting. And uh, of course, I haven't had an opportunity to read the book because I couldn't get it in the UK. Like I was saying earlier on before the show, I, as soon as I get it, I will be reading the book. And of course, I recommend everyone reads the book and buys the book. Of course, we can. It's 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 a global publication. Uh, tell us, tell us what you're trying to achieve with the book. So a little bit more about the book. What are you trying to cover? What is the sort of end um, purpose? As a reader, let's say I pick up the book tomorrow. What is my takeaway? I guess it'll be different for different people, no doubt. But what, what would you like me to take away from that book? Um, well, uh, there's there's so much in it. Um, I would say, you know, one there's so many things, but one thing would be a deeper connection to the natural world from reading it, just from reading the stories and just from trying the practices. Mm. And also the potentiality of stretching your consciousness to listening to dreams, uh, to potentially your muse, to listening to dreams for particular purposes, to your soul, to the spiritual world. Uh, so there, there's a lot. And I can go through the book in, in a little bit more detail. Um, in a way, you could read any of the chapters and in isolation, and right. each chapter would give you something. But the chapters do build. So they, they start out gentler, easier, and then they get more and more complex as you go through the book. It's actually quite a steep learning curve. Mm. And so I often recommend even in the introduction, like even if you just stay in the first few chapters, there's so much in the first few chapters and there's so many practices, right. you, you know, you don't have to move on until you're ready. There's no speed to it. Um, but the first section of the book is called wild. And the first six chapters are, you know, under this idea of rewilding ourselves um, about connecting to the body, connecting to the deepening our ecological perception or connecting to the natural world, having conversations, listening, um, connecting to our heart. You know, like mm -hmm. Joanna Macy says, it's the numbing of the heart that is at the center of Correct. Um, ecological devastation. So, and how do we, because of all the trauma in the world, it's like, you know, kind of getting hard is sort of a survival strategy. So how do we mm. open our hearts again? And then uh, the fourth one is a fun title, Feral Female Ferocity. Um, wow, and that's okay. kind of about um, embracing um, anger even uh, about that um, a lot of times anger is viewed as just bad. And there are things and uh, situations and moments, obviously, where it is abusive or harmful and not a good thing at all. But I think 
often in our culture, there's also moments where ferocity is part of our wholeness. And it's actually arising on the scene as a protective force that's meant to do good, um, whether it's self-protection, protection of those we love, or protection of the earth, because uh -huh. we love the earth. And that's also part of our family and part of our own bodies. Sure. So calling this ferocity back, which exists in the natural world, like snakes protect themselves, scorpions mm. protect themselves. Mm. And at one time, humans protect their land base. So how do we call this you know, ferocity back? Uh, receive the love of trees, which is about, um, you know, just the the love that forests hold, you know, just and the intelligence of their network of community and how do we tap in to them. And I share some of my own story because I've struggled to love myself and to love in the world. And trees have been one of the greatest teachers. <clears throat> and I share some of the practices and that I've, you know, lived through. And then the sixth chapter is a dream in the cave womb. So it's about how we go into the dream world to listen to uh, what the dreams tell us, and also to listen in particular for our mythic purpose, our souls, you know, why we're here, and to get a, get a vision that, you know, we're here to live. And then I talk, which is a lot of what I've done, I've worked with Animus Valley Institute for a lot of my life too, which their work focuses a lot on that. Um, and then um, the second section of the book is called Holy Longing. So now that we've rewild ourselves and we've opened all these forces, we're going on a deeper spiritual and soul journey. So um, opening to the sacred world is a chapter which includes spirit, soul, and ancestors. Um, mm. Following the mystery of what you love, which is, all, is about, I'm sure you've heard of the concept of anima or animus and the inner beloved. Mm. Why extend that concept beyond just um, human you know, love projections, but following the mystery of what we love, how we fall in love with certain qualities or ways of being and how that pulls mm -hmm. us on our journey to the next thing we're called to do. You know, we're often mm -hmm. between this idea of love and terror. You know, we usually fall in love with something that terrifies us yeah. and it's usually the call to step into something greater. Um, and then, um, gr you know, embracing grief and despair, which happens when mm -hmm. we fall in love, right? There's, we always lose what we love one day at some point. And so, uh, and also earth grief, you know, if we've opened our hearts now to the planet, how do we open to feeling our earth grief at what we love being destroyed? And so I have practices and, you know, stories about that. And then I go into um, making a pearl of your vulnerability, which is about the core wound that we all have uh, that also, or wounds more than one, and the core sensitivities that we all have, which also are part of our soul powers and our gifts and how we open to those. And then um, I talk about um, the fertile darkness, um, the mystery of what we love, like kind of the dark night of the soul and going on that journey and embracing mm. darkness as a guide and mystery wow. as a guide. Okay. And then um, the last chapter in Holy Longing is um, play your part in the symphony, which has to do with that connection of um, spirit and soul, the soul being our individual note to play and right. um, spirit being, you know, the symphony of the world. So how do we play? our note in the symphony and be part of it. So we're also attuned to the whole spirit of things, but we're playing our part. And mm. uh, so, and also talk about the dissonance of that symphony in the world and how we still play our, our mm. note with all these mm. challenges. And then the last section is called Beloved World. Right. And that's kind of about the, the giveaway. I mean, we go on the journey and we rewild ourselves and we open to our purpose and our soul and spirit connection in part so that we can serve you know, ultimately, traditionally, a lot of yogas have been about service. So how do I bring back these gifts in the world and be in relationship in the world where a way with a way in a way that I can be of service. So in that chapter, I talk about wild arrows, which is kind of about 
body love of the world, um, you know, which to me, our offerings always start with love. And we, we're always needing more about that because it's yeah. not an easy, yeah. it's not easy to, to do. And then uh, I have according the muse, which is about our creative service. So how do we um, engage with our muse so that we can be of creative service? And then uh, prayers in the dark, which is again about kind of going into the dark, but this time the dark of the earth to vision for the earth, earth. So it's not just our personal dark night. It's more like the earth's dark night and also mm. our sourcing ourselves in the, in the dark mystery to mm. dream with the earth for the earth and mm. receive visions for how we can grieve or serve. Um, and then radical dreaming, which is even more active. It's about asking our dreams to help guide our actions specifically specifically for the earth, uh, for lands and species, for asking for visions uh, communally about that. Wow. And then the last chapter is, the last two chapters, stretch your consciousness, which kind of brings us back to the roots of wild yoga, which it's all about stretching our consciousness. All of these practices are doing that. And then I stretch us a bit more in that chapter with um, uh, into tree consciousness, into shadow, sh uh, collective shadow work practices and reconciling with the goddess. Um, and then the last chapter is, called Become a Love Warrior for the Earth, which is ultimately where I think that if we're in our full wholeness um, and embracing that, that we, we will have the capacity in our own unique ways to uh, stand up for what we love and defend what we love and create a world that um, is about living and, and health, um, health mm. for us, health for others and, and health for the planet, which mm. we, we, one of the premises of the book is it's impossible for us to really be healthy individually if our planet is unhealthy because right. it's connected to us. Yeah. So if we think about individual health, just in this like vacuum of myself, um, we're not, we're missing the point. We're missing mm. the possibility, mm. which, which is, we have to be aware of the earth's mm. health. So. Mm. Wow. So thank you for taking us through that journey. I mean, that's a beautiful synopsis. And um, there were many chapters in there that particularly are all interesting with, you know, sometimes there's some, some chapters and some parts of the book that are more captivating than others based on your current situation as a, as a reader, as a listener. So I just want to probe a, a little bit more, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, I, want to, I want to start with you because I guess you, when you started to write the book 10 years ago, there was the 70,000 words that you wrote, was whatever it was, and then now you've published it. I would imagine what you wrote then to what you wrote, what you've written now in the book is different, maybe similar in many ways, but different because you've had a decade of life experience doing whatever you've been doing. Um, and there is so much wisdom and knowledge and brilliance and, uh, you know, helping people tap into to their consciousness to understand, at least through the medium of knowledge. So when you open a book, you're reading text and you're processing text and you're learning, you're learning, okay? You're not practicing necessarily at that point, but you're certainly learning. And through learning, you know, you can tap your brain and, and open your eyes to possibilities that you never really imagined existed. And that's the power of that knowledge. You've gathered that knowledge over the last many decades in your life, I guess. And what I wanted to ask you was, have you, I guess you've experienced everything in this book. So when you say one of the chapters is about dealing with trauma or grief and how do you deal with it? Well, you know, it's, it's about the awakening. It's about the heart. Um, you talk about 
you know, the journey, you said it was a journey that you have to go on from the first, from the beginning of the book, initiation, almost getting right to the end of the book, structured consciousness and so on. Um, so you, mu you must have built some special powers and abilities, uh, so to speak, and seen now are seeing things and feeling things uh, that the, the normal person cannot. Maybe you can see auras. Maybe you can see things in, in nature that we can't. Maybe you have another um, visual lens that I don't have. You've, you know, and I see that with a lot of people who have certain abilities that many of us don't because they've spent their lives trying to figure out who they really are and dig into consciousness and understand energy fields and, and so on and so forth. Um, how have you changed as a person? And how did you write this book? Was it just a combination of like researching other things or was it coming from within? Because you said it was just the words just kept coming. The words just kept coming. So something must have happened over the last decade. What did it? And if so, if you mind, if you don't mind digging deeper and being a little bit more vulnerable and telling us what happened. Yeah. And I, and I would say the story <clears throat> even began before when I wrote those 70,000 words, obviously I had to get some, yeah. had to live something yeah, to course. write those 70,000 words. And yeah. I mean, I had cancer when I was 21 and I talk about that as a journey of awakening, facing the strong possibility of death mm. was a big moment to me. I opened the book in the introduction with, with that story. And um, so, you know, the, the journey so far allowed me to write you know, what I did 10 years ago. And, um, you know, I just have to say, I'm not, I'm not sure, um, exactly what it, what happened. It, you know, I'm not sure if I can quantify exactly what happened mm. other than, uh, I was already, I've already been a guide my whole life, you know, and I take groups out. And so in a way, guiding is somewhat similar to writing. I listen to my muse and it tells me what to speak. And a lot of the time I don't plan what I say, I did plan when I was a new guide, of course, you have to start somewhere, but before long and the way I <clears> usually <throat> is just listen and things come through me, things come through me and sitting down at a computer, of course, it's kind of different, you know, like, it's just like not quite as romantic as being out in nature, you know, like having something come through you, but it is, if you're in your imagination with all the places mm -hmm. that you've been, mm -hmm. then those, then those things are coming through you. And the, you know, the major thing that shifted for me is my heartbreak for the earth in that 10 years. You know, when I first wrote the book, I, uh, I was a guide to the spiritual and the soul life, listening to dreams, listening to nature, listening to the soul, living your soul purpose. And there was a part in me and I was uh, working as an animus guide. And there was a part in me that believed that was enough. I still did my own wild yoga programs on the side. And that was to incorporate more of the body than I did at, at Animus. It's, you know, dreams and nature, but yoga and, and a lot of the other things I've studied, Hakomi and other kinds of body practices, somatic meditation are about mm. listening to the body equally as much as nature and, and uh, the wilderness. So that's what wild yoga was. It was listening to nature, dreams, and the body. And so I was ready to write that book. And that was the book I wrote 10 years ago. And then um, something happened in the midst of my own grief for the planet. Uh, you know, um, I was a river guide here in Durango, Colorado, and uh, the river turned orange and um, nobody could go in it for a couple of weeks. One of the old mines broke loose and polluted everything. And so you, we were watching here in this, you know, really beloved town. Everybody loves to come. It's quite popular with the tourists and, you know, beautiful place. And then I just watched it, you know, mm. just destroyed and 
then when I did some research about it and wrote about it, I uh, realized that actually it's been polluted for a long time. It just goes unnoticed because it's only piece bit by bit. Mm. And it was only when this like spill happened that <clears throat> it looked really massive. And then I started studying about all, all the rivers in Colorado that are polluted by these old mines. And then I started studying about all the rivers that are polluted by so many things, you know, like mm. um, all the chemicals and the agriculture and, and uh, uh, the industry and the oceans, you know, too, that are overfished and, mm. um, and the oil uh, spills and all the pollution happening to them. And, and then I started reading about all the lands and forests being devastated. And, you know, it's a lot to take in all of it. it and is, then, of yeah. course, I heard about the bears and I'm, you know, wild bear and I'm very connection to them and mm. what's happening to them in Asia. And so when I started to really, I think that I had always known these things existed, but I didn't really want to take in all the details and all mm -hmm. the story. Mm. It was hard to focus on that. I wanted to focus on soul and like the beautiful places, mm. but the earth was really calling me to pay attention to the difficult places. One, my soul name um, is a brave hearted wild love prayer who lives in the dark waters, a witness to horror and beauty. And so the soul work is, you know, really the beauty listening to being in beautiful wild places and listening to the beauty of people's souls and purposes coming through. But the horror is, you know, watching the devastation of, of the wild world and what everything that I love. Um, and so, you know, my soul was calling me to deepen into that capacity to listen to that and allow that to be part of wild yoga. Mm -hmm. And once I allowed that to be part of wild yoga, I also joined um, some earth activism groups and was a writer for, on behalf of the earth, you know, for, for various things. And, and so my writing was like this way that I could deal with my grief, you know, like that I was taking action in some way that I was giving something that I was pouring my heart out. And so when I got into that practice of writing from that place, from that love, um, something broke open in me. And then I was able to write the book that I wrote. And it's really quite different than the one I wrote 10 years ago. So that is the best I can mm. describe. Mm. I, I almost had a, a love affair too, with just this idea that I had of the possibility of protecting the earth. Mm. You know, part of me had probably always thought, oh, well, you know, maybe it's just too late or maybe there's nothing I can do. But something fell in me, fell in love with this idea of a love warrior for the earth that we can make a difference. And it's not about whether it's too late or it's not too late. It's about yeah. our connection right now mm. and how we're living with the earth right now, whatever the future. Mm. So, and part of that connection is standing up for what we love. Mm. Mm. Do you, um, do you, uh, well, guidance really now from you, you talk a lot about dreams in your book, you know, and mm -hmm. that sort of got my, uh, got my attention and, um, help us understand what you mean by this, because, um, again, for the listeners that are out there, many of our listeners are quite well informed, you know, they do watch a lot of the straight talk episodes, thankfully. So it's a good thing. Uh, but I'm intrigued to understand the interpretation of these dreams and what level of curation and what level of influence do we have really um, on using our dreams. And when you, when, when you say dreams, you're talking about the state in which when we sleep, correct? Um, is that what you're referring to, right? Those dreams. Well, uh, yes. And um, I expand that definition that we, in a way, we're dreaming all the time. 
Right. Um, when we're asleep, the, the thing that's helpful is that our minds are shut off. <laughs> um, so we know that the dreams are pure imagination, pure dream. Right. right. And so nighttime dreams are great ways to, to start working with the dream. And once you start working with dreams, you can also begin to track the waking dream of life. And that's, um, I, th I think of it like there's certain things arising up, trying to grasp our attention all the time. When mm. we're very focused on what we're, we have to get done and what we're doing, we, we don't mm. have time for them because mm. we're just like, there's no space. We've got to get this done. But yeah. if we, if we can, you know, <clears throat> expand our attention and turn toward them, we can feel that there's these surprising images, feelings, impulses, memories coming up and that there's often a reason for it. Sometimes it can be hard to be with those things. And that's why busyness can be good mm -hmm. or distraction. Um, but also they can be brilliant and, you know, and powerful and, um, you know, ex exquisite too. They're not really one or the other. They can be both, but they are part of the dream that wants our attention. And so we can learn to start tracking that in the waking world too. But a great place to start is just by tracking our nighttime dreams and remembering them. And that can be a hard practice at first for right. people because yes. again, again, with busyness, what I find is when I'm busy, it's hard to, it can be hard to remember my dreams because I'm, yes. I fall asleep thinking about like what yeah. I got to deal with the next day. And then I wake up thinking about what I got to jump in and do. And then yeah. like the dream just does, I, you know, we're always dreaming, but because I'm so focused on my day world life, it can be harder to remember the dream. Mm. Have, you, have you figured out, sorry to interrupt, have you figured out ways in which, I mean, this is again, guidance, practices one can do to try and help with the, uh, the process of dreaming. So you can condition yourself over a period of time. It's like going to the gym. You have a personal trainer. Over time, you start to see the effects. You're like, okay, feel a bit better, a little bit fitter and so on. And, and, you know, I want to be clear with a personal trainer and the personal trainer being the coach or the guide or the mentor, whoever it may be, someone who can shepherd you. And I, I'm, I'm a big believer of intervention. I'm a big believer of intervention. Uh, I don't think all this, you know, just get me the books. I'll be fine. I don't I, personally, I don't believe it, it. That's how it should be done. I'm not saying it's impossible. What guidance would you give to someone who's listening to you saying, well, okay, I'm one of those. You're right. I'm super busy. I don't even remember my dreams. I never remember my dreams. I just wake up. I'm like a robot. What, what, what do we do? What is the practical stuff that we can do? Um, the, well, the practical stuff would be, um, I love that metaphor, by the way, like, I think it is a lot like an exercise or working out. I mean, one of the things I'll just say that comes to me straight away, there's going to be a few things I, I'll say, but is is uh, writing our dreams down in our journal in present tense, mm -hmm. uh, present tense, because they're still happening in our psyche. They didn't, you know, they're not over. If we'd had a dream last night, it's still happening. It right. didn't end. It's still here. It's still right. here usually for at least a couple of weeks. And some dreams are with us for a lifetime. Some dreams are like yeah. Yeah. dreams. So we can tell if the dream is still alive. First of all, if it's happened in the last couple of weeks, it's probably still alive. It's happened last night. It's still alive. And, and certain dreams, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of sitting somewhere and then suddenly a dream from like 10 years ago comes up or, you know, or something happens in the day world something, and it yeah, yeah. reminds you and you're like, whoa. So you can feel like by your charge and curiosity that 
oh, that's still alive. It still has some life to it. There's something in me curious about it. So we can still work with past dreams. Childhood dreams are often really powerful. So remembering our dreams, writing them down in the present tense. And it's great if you could have a dream buddy and tell someone too. And right. have somebody, I mean, I'm a dream guide. So it's great to tell a dream guide who can, who can work with you. Sure. I mean, we'd all love that. I love when I can work with my dreams with the dream guide rather than just myself, but I do the best I can too on my own or just telling a buddy, my dream, speaking it out loud with somebody else who will value dreams. Sometimes people don't, it's not a good idea necessarily to tell people who aren't going to value it, but somebody who you're going to share your dream with, and they're going to share their dream present tense, and maybe just ask questions, not trying to interpret I think of dreams a lot like wilderness. So I don't go into the wilderness saying, well, gosh, what does this tree mean and this river mean? And how does right. it, what does it mean about me? I just right. like walk in and I let it affect me. Like, oh, mm-hmm. this tree is having an effect on me. This water, it's changing mm-hmm. me. So we're trying to see one of my best questions when working with dreams is what is this dream wanting me to experience? So I'm trying to listen. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. an idea that maybe the dream knows more than I do. So whatever the dream ego is thinking in the dream, I hold that in question. Maybe the dream ego is wrong. The dream ego always likes to think it's the smartest character in the mm. in the mm. in the mythic hero's journey. But um, I look at dreams a little bit like, yeah, the ego thinks that. But what if these other intelligences are actually more um, intelligent, you know, more important and more intelligent? And I, what if, can I listen to? How can I help mm. my dreamers listen to them? When I do dream work with people, I always say. I'm not working for the human. I'm working for the dream. And I'm trying right. to get, get the human to listen to the dream, help the human listen to the dream. Uh, Cause it's hard. We have a lot of blocks. The dream wants to show mm. us sometimes the things that the ego doesn't want to take yeah. in. So it can be hard and there's no pressure or force, but if the dream came in, in some ways, the person is ready. It just might take time. Some dreams take a lot of time, even a lifetime to unpack. Certainly a few weeks you can work multiple sessions on one dream and still unpack different layers and levels of it. Often people tell me, I had a dream and I know what it means. <laughs> and, and I think, oh, well, maybe you do, but I bet there's a bunch of other meanings too that you don't know because mm. the dream is so powerful and usually holds so much we don't know and can't figure out quickly. And, and why do you think it's important to have, I guess you are saying it's important for people to be connected to their dreams or at least be on a journey where they appreciate and understand that they're dreaming for starters. And why do we need to, why do we need to unblock this? Why can't it just be the way it is today? Why, why, why should we care? Great question. Um, I I think it's a lot like, why should we care about the wilderness? Um, Mm. You know, like we can see the physical living wilderness feeds us and clothes us and all of our cells are made out of it and we're connected. Mm. We can't quite see the dream time, but it's a wild energy and force that we're equally connected to. And it used to be that humans, um, you know, in before colonization and in, in, when indigenous cultures lived a lot, a lot of cultures mm. uh, listened to dreams as a source of practical and spiritual guidance every day, elected mm. officials based on it or made decisions based on it. Mm. And so it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, how we can be around reading the newspaper in our culture today, like what's happening out there. Um, instead, people would listen to their dreams. Well, what's happening in there? What's the news that I just got from this other world mm. that I can bring into the day world? So when we when we are when we are out of touch with the dream, it's like we're not connected to a major source of life, like not being connected to the earth. We would not be connected to a major source of life. 
And I feel that the earth and the dream world are connected. And in, in, in partly I feel that way because of my experience listening to people's stories with the earth and listening to their dreams. And sometimes messages come through that are quite similar through the dream world and conversations with the earth as if the earth and the dream world are somehow working together to try to help the human mm. understand or hear the same thing. Mm. Mm. There is a body of research happening right now on um, one aspect of the brain, the pineal gland that I'm sure you, you're aware of and how that has, you know, are in, in a way there's the conspiracy theory that a lot of fluoride in the water or uh, whatever factors have, have calcified the pineal glands and the pineal gland is our ability to actually uh, get downloads from wherever those downloads need to come from. Um, and then there is this refocus on the heart and how the heart is way more, way more important than the neocortex, which, you know, there is again, theory that 200,000 years ago, prior to that, we didn't have a neocortex that we were purely limbic system based and we weren't in, um, you know, we didn't have this ability to, to rationalize the way that we do and whether that's an intervention or whether that was part of the DNA or was, you know, evolutionary, we don't know it. There's a lot of interesting theories around it. I think one consistent is that when you go to sleep and when you're asleep and we, as human beings, we sleep and that's pretty consistent. We, we do go, um, the mind turns off for most people, most of the time. And then we go off into this realm and we call it dreams. And there, you know, psychologically, there've been studies on it and you're giving a very interesting perspective on it. I wonder if, and maybe this is the, the case that you're wanting to support. I wonder if we could be more connected with the dream world, uh, asleep, and then we, are, we can dream awake too. We will um, be able to hear and see the things you're hearing and seeing in the wilderness. Now, not everyone has the opportunity to be a guide at a young age and do what you did. And um, not to mention trauma, which is why I was keen to figure out what is the story here, because I've suffered a lot of personal trauma, health trauma, and I am a product of my trauma. Fortunately, I've got over my trauma as much as one can, but I've framed it so it's been good for me as opposed to being bad for me, okay? Um, a good scenario, for example, yesterday I was speaking to someone when I've been in hospital beds many, many times, and you'll know this, if you've ever been through health trauma, and especially when you were 21, you had cancer, so you'd remember that. Um, when you're lying in a hospital bed in a hospital, not the, not the best environments in the world, obviously, rather depressing, really. I learned to reframe my bed. I used to call it the hospital um, bed holiday. And because I went to hospital so often, so I thought, ah, now I'm in, in a hospital bed. Let me look at the bed and see this as a holiday. I can read. I can, sl I can sleep much more than I used, you know, I'm used to sleeping. I can watch TV, I can watch Netflix or whatever it may be. And I, ref I reframed the hospital bed. And because I reframed it, everything that happened during that time was generally a little bit more positive than it would have been negative. You know, um, for example, this, this concept of reframing is, in, is important. What, what is your view on reframing um, our entire perspective uh, in, in life? Because dreaming is one part, but it's deeper. You need a guide, you need a coach. It's, for some people, it's far out. They're like, I, I don't even know where to start, Rebecca. 
I, I, I don't even know what to do with what you're saying because I don't even know I, dr- I dreamt. I know people who say, I don't even know if I dream. I don't think so. I don't remember any dreams. I'm, I remember all my dreams, good or bad, but a lot of people don't. Is there something before that? And I, I, know, I know there is in your book, but is there something before that that one has to work on before we can get to figuring out dreams? Yeah, great. And, um, you know, that's why I put dreams as chapter six. There's a lot of things in between that we could do to work up to that in the book um, in terms of connecting to our body, connecting to nature, connecting to our heart, connecting to our ferocity, connecting to our love. So those are all practices that can help us build up to be able to listen more. But an additional, additional thing I'll add is that a lot of times I think of the dream or the dream maker or where dreams come from, whatever mystery we want to call that as a kind of being like, you know, the earth is a being mm. and I have a relationship with that being. And, you know, culture teaches us to think that, oh, that being's not that important. It, you know, there's a, a lot of hierarchy mm. in culture. There's like, a lot of hierarchy. Yeah. Who, who and what is important and who and what isn't. And no dreams right. are not. So we learn to like dismiss dreams and to ignore dreams. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine, you know, if you had a friend and all your other friends said, you know, don't bother with him because he's not going to, he's going to be a waste of your time. Mm -hmm. And you just stopped paying attention and talking to him and start focusing on other people and other Mm -hmm. things (laughs) that friend would um, stop talking will go away. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit what our dream life I imagine is like when we are raised in a culture that teaches us to just ignore Mm -hmm. and discount our dreams. So it's like a courtship back. Like say you wanted to earn that friend's trust back and say, Mm -hmm. Hey, gosh, I'm so sorry. I like, that was a big mistake. You you're quite valuable. And I, I missed it. And I do want to listen to you. And I do mm. want to be close. And I do want to be friends. You would, you would turn and you would have a conversation and that mm. friend might not come. It might come right. Depending on the person, it might, the friend might immediately say, great. I was just waiting for you to say that I'm ready to jump back in. Or the friend might say, maybe I'll just let, wait and see if you're going to mm. stay on this trajectory or not before I step back in. But mm. either way, whatever happens, you know, that I think a place to start if we're not dreaming is just simply to acknowledge the importance of dreams, the dream that it's out there and to have a conversation, maybe apologize, maybe mm. refocus our energy and say, I really want to remember. Sometimes mm. it can be hard in a busy world with so many commitments. Mm. So sometimes I suggest having like one or two nights a week where you can talk to the dream maker before you go to bed and like mm. plan that morning not to wake up to an alarm and have a little time in the morning so that if you do remember your dream, you can keep your eyes closed and stay focused on whatever come. It can still be quick. The mind can come in and discount. Oh, that was just an image or, oh, that was just a work dream. Or, oh. But if you ask for a dream, you have to trust whatever comes and an right. image or a color, however small or little it seems, it's really mm-hmm. significant. If you dismiss what you get, what's the dream maker going to say? Do you imagine what would yeah. the friends say? Yeah. Oh, well, I tried. This person yeah. doesn't want to listen. But when you listen to whatever you get, you're building a relationship with the dream maker mm. and more will come. Mm. Do you believe interpreting dreams and when you're coaching people or guiding people in terms of this journey, is it about, well, I wake up in the morning and I say, hey, I have a session with you. And I say, I dreamt about this, this, I dreamt about this. And I've been dreaming about this a lot over the last two months. And maybe that that that's that narrative is related to my life. Maybe I'm going through something. Um, let's say something awful. Let's say it's a divorce 
let's just say, and I'm, I'm in a bad relationship with a partner or someone and it's, it's bugging me. It's taking all of my energy. It's sapping me because it's not a good thing. And then when I dream, I'm dreaming about that person and thinking about the, the, the day. I'm also thinking about the random wild scenarios with that person. Uh, and then I come out of the dream. Now, what would you say to me at that point? What am I supposed to do something about it? You're like, don't worry about it. It's just natural. What is the guidance you, you're, you're going to give to a, a coachee at that point? Um, uh, to, a guidance that I'm going to give to them about around listening to their dreams or. Yeah. Like, so that, so that's my scenario, right? That's my scenario. I'm working with you. Right. Uh-huh. And now what, what are you going to say to me? I would, you know, I would say, um, you know, humans have a lot of ideas about who they are based on what's going on in their middle world life. And there are a lot of stressors out mm. there to mm-hmm. help reinforce those stories. Mm-hmm. And the dream world might have a completely different idea about who you are. And it might be trying to whisper it to you right now. But if you're so um, occupied by the story that you think is true about you, and that that is the only story and as deep as you can right. go, right. then you might be missing out on this deeper possibility. Mm-hmm. So what if, is there a way that you could put this story you know, on the shelf somewhere as like, okay, well, maybe this is a story about me and maybe there's mm. truth to it, but mm. it might not be the most important story. And mm. it can be somewhat liberating, you know, and sometimes people do even bigger ceremonies around letting go of their story, but even just putting this aside to listen to the story that wants to come through the dream, like sense themselves in some other way that's much more mysterious and core to why they came here and who mm. they really are. Mm. Mm. Beautiful, okay. Uh, switching gears, we're running out of time, it always happens, but switching gears very quickly, I wanted to get your sentiments on a few things. So if you look at the generation um, today, the younger generation and the generations to come, uh, we, you know, I wanted to get your view on how you feel about the state of the world in terms of this this generation, because the jury is out, you know, there are different views, different perspectives, uh, positive, not so positive, mixed, and so on. Um, but when it comes to your work, wild yoga, looking at, you know, reconnecting with nature, look, trying to figure out yourself, looking at the heart, looking at um, your relationship with your dreams, you know, getting much deeper into the self through the practices that you've described. Um, how do you feel about the future of our civilization with millennials, with Gen Z, Gen Alpha? Um, they've got different labels these days. How do you, I'm sure you interact with them. How do you feel about that generation and the work you're doing? Um, what's, what are your sentiments? Well, you know, I suppose I feel differently depending on who, which young person I'm talking yeah, with. Of course. Um, I'll give you, a, I'll give you some examples. Mm. Um, when I'm talking to young people who come <clears throat> up with programs that I guide and I'm listening to the courage that they have to, to let go of their own comforts and their, the stories about who they should be in the civilization and, to listen to their dreams in soul at such a young age and start uh, you know, having the strength to receive the visions and live the revisions that they receive, however terrifying and altering and scary they are from what they thought or who they thought they were, you know, that gives me hope because I see them living uh, from a place of you know, this deeper listening. Um, when I when I work with young people who I see care about the planet so much um, and also recognize that our, our civilization as it exists is not, is not going to work. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's going down either way. It's unsustainable. Correct. And okay. so it's, it's just a matter of, you know, 
if it if it falls um if it takes the biosphere with it and kills mm. the planet or if it falls before which of course is my hope that it mm. ends before and that the planet can still be intact mm. um and so when i see people that have an understanding of the the, the great gravity of the situation and are dedicating their lives to viewing the world on what's most important for the earth and animals and species and future generations of all species that gives me hope mm. um and then you know sometimes when i see younger generations um addicted to technology or or drugs mm. or internet and not doing the work and just completely stuck of course that you know makes me feel really sad mm. We, I think, I think the the thing that worries us, and you know, it's been about a hundred episodes I've done now. And what you're saying is very important. And I'll share my takeaways momentarily. The general consensus I feel, because you know, you write these books, you say what you say, you think the way you think, as in we, us, because um, we do we do it for ourselves sometimes, but we also do it for the betterment of society and humanity and everything we care for, this world that we live on, as you quite rightly put it, Mother Nature. And um, we try our best to help the next few generations do better than us, right? Um, and it's kind of the message I've got is bizarre. I've been interviewing a lot of people, and I don't know, it's not by design, but I have been interviewing a lot of people who are in their late 70s for some reason over the course of the last year and a half. And the consistent message I've got is this concept and this meaning of uh, being human. And, you know, many of these people have been technologists and, you know, very wealthy and have been through all sorts of life experiences, good and bad. And they, they all say one thing when they close off a session and they say, let's do everything we can to be as human as possible. And one of the things I fear, although I'm a technologist, is these new technologies um ai is great in its own way this concept of a metaverse which is a virtual world these technologies are designed to create greater dependency and addiction no different to smoking a cigarette or being addic addicted to anything be it alcohol or food or whatever it may be and they're so powerful and they're so well engineered because they're grounded in science they understand how chemical reactions can happen in the brain dopamine hits can happen and so on. And, you know, you know, Facebook and all of these platforms are built with, with behavioral science. Okay. Uh, it's not an accident. It's not just widgets coming together or code coming together by accident. It's well thought through. Now, what worries me is when you, what you talk about distraction or the busyness, the busyness in, in a world that is not close to nature, but is so virtual where let's forget my phone. That's I'm already in a virtual world here. Uh, with the apps that I have, but let's think about the phone, the, the world within my phone, within, uh, the, you know, the app, uh, and much deeper, where I'm existing uh, so detached from human nature and mother nature. Um, that worries me a lot, and there's no, nothing stopping it right now. So, you know, when I do these episodes and when we're listening to you and you're releasing your book, our vision and, and my job is to try and get this message out to as many people as possible, even if they read five pages or two pages, even if they read a page of the book, because we have to change behaviors. 
And I worry for the next generation. I do believe, by the way, I'm very hopeful like you. I have been to a lot of universities and I've seen a lot of people raise their hands and be passionate, almost like they're on a mission. They've got a cause to protect the earth. And I, I just love that. I'm like, wow, cool, thank God there's some, there's some salvation here. But I also see the other side like you do. What can we do, do you think? It's a pragmatic question. What can we do to take books like yours and uh, get get that message to to the younger generation. And I'm sure you're doing it, by the way. I know I'm sure you are. But is there anything that you think is like your magic wand, your Harry Potter wish, where you think, I wish I could somehow get this to the younger people. So a hundred years down the line, when I'm dead and gone, uh, there is the change happening that you are so desperately working towards because that's why you wrote the book. That's why you do the work you do. Oh, yeah, that's great. I love that question. Um, Although, you know, I, I do wish education was different. I don't know if I didn't mention this, but in my background, but I was an elementary school counselor for about uh, three and a half years, oh, um, right, okay. right out of graduate school in my 20s. And I used to make classroom lessons for students. I got to design the classroom lessons for all the classes. And, mm -hmm. and I got to also see the way education was and, and get the jobs, the administrative jobs that I was given you know, to do that I didn't feel were like about test scores and they weren't like important. And I got to see how the focus was on academic performance and test scores and not on humanity and relationship to oneself, each other and the earth. And uh, then I started working in wilderness therapy for a while with troubled youth. And then the focus was working with really troubled people, but the focus was on like that human relationship. Anyway, I'm just trying to come back to, it is very dear to me. I wish back in my twenties, even I had a longing to redesign the education system. And I know that some people have done it and there are some alternative, you know, Montessori outdoor schools and different things that mm. use different approaches mm. uh, that are mm. much more in alignment with probably the practices of wild yoga. And then there's also traditional education and the test scores that are, you know, that the mass, the masses of culture go through. But I wish that education was completely different. I, I, I actually call sometimes public education the holocaust of the human soul and the human body when they take a little child's body and sit it in a desk all day and just get it disembodied. So absolutely, you know, kind of, kind of I, there's some books about this too. One was written by a teacher. I, I can't remember the title of it, but I, I quoted in my book. Um, but, you know, education was made to help people fit into the cog of, of society. Uh, you know, and not have imagination and not be connected to their body, but be able to just work in the workforce and keep things going. And, and that's not really education. I mean, that's just um, mainstream culture stuck in its addictive pattern and, and, you know, orchestrating its young to be stuck in that pattern too, raising them to be stuck. And uh, so there has to be a completely different way to bring young people um, in early um, and and also as soon as we realize it like uh, you know to as adults to re-educate ourselves or uneducate yeah. ourselves yeah. back into these more important ways of being it's mm -hmm. it's kind of a core to the project and then to make it even more complicated it's not just about our individual growth which needs a lot but it's also about our relationships because it seems like change will happen through community and coming together you know yeah right now our society is run by systems of power um, and laws that are harming everything, harming the earth. And it's legal to harm the earth and it's illegal to protect it. So that won't be able to be, oh, I think it's communities of people coming together that has the biggest possibility 
rather than individuals in isolation. So mm -hmm. you know, hopefully we can do these practices in, in communities. Um, I, I long for that. I, I do it in temporary communities that come together and do personal work, but my longing is actually, and my vision is communities that come together of prayer and protection, you know, where they come together to deepen in community and in the relationship and in their protection of their land base. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. And um, I think, um, you know, I would love to, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I would recommend everyone goes out and buys and reads the book. And this is a, this is a journey, right? I mean, you, this is a journey and you've got to have some awareness of how you want to exist between death, life and death. You know, that that's sort of the middle of the sandwich, you know, the certainty of being born and the certainty of dying is, is pretty much there so far. And you've got to figure out what you want to do with the stuff in the middle. Uh, I do feel that Western society, you live in it and so do I, um, is going through a major uh, upheaval. And uh, there is an awakening, I think, amongst many of us, and we, we've realized we are a definite minority though. And there's a lot of change still to be made. And, you know, most recently I was interviewing Dr. Alicia Fasano. He's in Mass, he's at Mass General in the States. He's the head of um, essentially the, the master of gut, the gut, the microbiome, and the head of the celiac unit and, and various other units. And he wrote this, this huge book, 550 pages, called Gut Feelings, um, Your Microbiome, I think, Your Health and the Microbiome. And a lot of what he talked about also indirectly was mother nature in terms of the food supply and the food chain. And he said the food chain is being destroyed and corrupted at such a level now. And, you know, he, he's one of the foremost scholars in this domain. And he said, he, and it is a problem of the West much more than it is a problem of the East. Um, and we, we, are, we continue to destroy it and therefore illnesses and cancer and all of these other things. And when he talked about those uh, waters, you know, the, the, the rivers that you talked about being polluted. And then you started to study it and realize, well, gosh, this is, oh, it's almost not worth studying it because it's so depressing. Um, you start to lose faith in mankind and humankind a little bit because it's us who do this destruction work, you know, as much as we, there are many who protect like you. Um, it, it, you have to stop and you have to think. And I think this realization and this awakening has to be scaled and it has to be at mass level not just a small community of straight talkers or people who read your book or, or your you know your fans and, and your community so i'll try my best with my platform to try and get this message across as much as i can i'm deeply grateful that you've taken time today to speak it was very calming i think you know you're obviously an evolved soul and you've discovered yourself in many different ways and you've had your journey your ups and your downs it's clear that you've had trauma and uh, I'm trying to, I was trying to connect with it, albeit on Zoom, you know, and trying to understand it so other people understand it too. So for that, I'm deeply grateful. Thank you for coming on the show today. Wild Yoga is, is Rebecca's book, and um, it is an important book, and we will promote it and push it. Before you go, uh, I, would, I would love you to say just a few words on how the experience has been for you today. I know you do a lot of podcasts and you speak to a lot of people offline and online. How did you find the conversation today? Just a few words to help us get better and to motivate us as well to continue doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. It was wonderful to get to hear what your particular curiosities were 
uh, regarding the book, what you know, the, what subjects and topics you most wanted to delve into of all the possibilities. And it was great to hear your questions, which were often refined down to like, how can readers begin? Like, what steps can they take? How can they embrace this, you know, complex, you know, very different kind of way of looking th at things than, you know, culture? What are some beginning things that they can do? And um, I loved your fascination with dreams because I think that is a core of mm. the work that I do as well, just like a, a base of everything. So thank you for being curious about that and asking lots of questions. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for coming to the show. And uh, straight talkers, please subscribe to the show bottom right there when you when you watch this video. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Take care of yourself. Come back to us when you would like to say more. And if you have another book, I'm sure you do. You've got seem to have many versions of stuff that you've written. Then I guess you know you might publish it now moving forward. Please come back to us, talk to us, and we just want to get this message out to our goal is over a million people and try and impact their consciousness positively, try and accelerate their knowledge, try and accelerate their awareness. So they see things that they haven't seen uh, in the past and they can be better people as a result. So that's what we're trying to do here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for all you do, helping get my book out and, and all the people that you talk with. I'm very generous for you to spend your time uh, trying to share all of this with everyone. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you, Straight Talkers. Uh, look after yourself. Um, Rebecca, take care. See you soon. Bye-bye.